Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we talk about moving away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. My name is Laura, and I'm the Learning Engagement Manager at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In this episode, the hosts, Seb and Tansi, are joined by Vigil Zhu, Content Manager for the Foundation in China, and Emma Chao, lead of our food initiative. In this episode, we discussed some of the trends observed due to the COVID-19 pandemic on our food system, with a particular focus on China as a case study, and how and why the circular economy offers a solution to build a resilient system. Seb kicked off the conversation by asking Vigil whether it's true that China has grain reserves to feed their entire population for up to nine months in case of emergencies. Yeah, it's uh, really great to be here. Thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, yes, actually, yesterday I just came across another official source that says we, for certain greens, that we have reserves for more than one year, actually. And if you're thinking about the 1.4 billion population we have, that's definitely remarkable. But uh, since we're talking about food today, uh, green is only part of the story. Uh, as you may know, food is very important to the Chinese culture historically. It's essential in the culture, so it's, it's well beyond uh, sustenance. So uh, China has implemented a range of different measures to ensure food security. And I want to just bring back more in recent times, in 1988, actually, the government rolled out the vegetable basket program, which uh, mandated that it's the mayor's responsibility to ensure the abundance and diversity in their citizens' vegetable basket. So that covers non-green food going ranging from vegetables, fruits, uh, meat, dairy, and eggs. And uh, through the scheme, a very efficient market mechanism has been established. So that's similar to what we know in the like modern food supply chain. Um, you could be a small smallholder farmer growing plums in the middle of nowhere, and then there will be middlemen coming to your village and collecting food from you, and then they will aggregate that and eventually take that to wholesale that goes into retail and then in the end end up on uh, the consumer's table. They could live in the city and still have access to all types of food. And uh, even, even more in this program, there uh, many cities actually have set targets for themselves to have self-sufficiency in certain food types. So for example, one city could say we can 100% supply all the vegetables the city eats only from the peri-urban area, from the farm reserves, which is hugely beneficial when there is a crisis or shock to the system. So, so tell us a little bit more about that. What, what's it been like um, in China when they've reacted to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic? How have they managed to leverage this kind of importance of food in history and, and the kind of way they've set up um, their supply chains and access to food in society? Yeah. So, uh, as I said, uh, supply is not really an issue. I haven't really seen uh, reports from anywhere that there is really a lack of food. So, variety might be um, impacted during the pandemic. And as you can imagine, the, there has been truly a shock to the system. 
And however, uh, the central government has been really good at mobilizing resources across different regions. So they can ship food across the country to the area that's in uh, lockdown for a long time that actually needs the food supply. And however, actually, uh, when we're talking about COVID and all the, the shutdown, the challenge actually lies mainly in access. So there are two sides of the story. First of all, is people's access to food. Because of social distancing, it's more difficult for people to just go to the market they usually go to and just get food easily, daily, on a daily basis even. And another aspect of this is the farmer's access to the market. Because as I mentioned before, the supply chain tends to be quite long and uh, transport is uh, really badly impacted during this. A lot of the highways are shut down. And also um, there has been an absence of the middlemen in this whole system. And when you, just sorry to interrupt, Vigil. When you say the supply yeah. chain is quite long, what's interesting about that or what maybe just I wanted to call out is that's within China, right? So it's not... Sometimes we think about this kind of local food dynamic as being something that crosses regions or crosses countries. But I guess China is such an enormous country that the supply chains can be very long when food is just being transported from one part of China to one of the cities, for example. Yeah, yeah, where, uh, yeah, China ranges through very different climate types, types and you get fruit mainly from the, the south of China and different regions have their own specialties. So if you're thinking about that distance, it's, it's quite long already just in terms of kilometers. Um, so, yeah. And when we talk about uh, access and how to make new connections, basically, in, in the pandemic, uh, enters internet, that's always kind of the, a good answer when we are challenged about access and connection. And uh, China is no stranger to e-commerce. This has been booming in China for the past couple of years. And uh, however, actually, in terms of selling food, especially produce online, uh, there hasn't been a great uptake as other items because people are more used to buying food offline. Uh, however, this pandemic obviously have, a, have given a big push for, to the e-commerce that sells produce online. And uh, so people, uh, they, uh, many of the big uh, e-commerce giants have seen a really huge boom in terms of sale and uh, usership uh, through this time. And even the small corner store stores have come up with ways to uh, bring their delivery services online. So uh, that's obviously one side that helps uh, consumers to get access to food. And then, as I mentioned before, there's also a big aspect in terms of farmers' access to the market. Um, so many of the e-commerce platforms have set up special channels to designed specifically to help these farmers to get connected to the market through the internet. So they have these charity channels where people can buy directly from special regions and special farmers whose perishables might be uh, stalls on the, in the land. And, uh, and more interestingly, actually, I, I found this uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. Uh, many of the celebrities and uh, political figures like mayors, they've uh, started try out uh, online live stream to set, to help to help their local farmers to sell their produce so it's, it's been a really interesting process when you say online live streams for selling food what's that like an auction or you know what, what does that actually mean uh, no it's uh, actually I think it's the phenomenon started last year in China when people are selling all sorts of things online and you have these internet celebrities um, 
trying to sell mostly consumer goods. And then they have interaction with the viewers. They can ask questions and, and such. So really uh, just getting closer to the consumers. And so it's interesting to see this platform being used in this way and for, for charities, for help smallholder farmers who may not have this kind of access by themselves. So that's right. It is interesting. You've got this kind of context that may be unfamiliar to some of our viewers of a country that's very focused on how do we ensure that we're food secure. You've got this kind of digitization that's also kind of perhaps uh, from just interpreting a bit what you said, maybe visual, not trying to put words in your mouth, almost bringing people a bit closer to their food by virtue of uh, even via digital means or these online marketplaces. Um, so where does the circular economy come in and what are the opportunities? Where, where's the momentum in China for this kind of circular economy for food vision right now? Yeah, so uh, as we were discussing uh, e-commerce, obviously it brings people more connected to uh, their food producers in a way, but it has many drawbacks. So, for example, and the food mile is not really taking into account. There might be a lot of packaging associated with long-term transport and uh, people don't always know who exactly they're buying food from. So there is a traceability issue and many of the smallholder farmers may not have direct access to this kind of uh, platforms. So actually uh, among this, a very interesting, it actually has been an emerging trend in China, this movement about uh, community supported agriculture. So I, if the audience have uh, tuned in for the Big Food Workshop two weeks ago, one of the speakers is uh, from China, Dr. Shi. Uh, she is a leading figure in the CSA, community-supported agriculture. And uh, through the pandemic, I've, I've been uh, reading her blogs and she has had some uh, reflections on how CSA has been really helpful in terms of building a more resilient food system. I should probably explain what is uh, CSA, yes, if, the viewers, <laughs> if the viewers don't know. So um, community-supported agriculture, as you may be able to guess from the name, is people getting connected directly to their food producer, usually located in the peri-urban area of big cities. Um, so they would, as a member for such a farm, you might have to pay a fee upfront. Therefore, you can share the financial and financial risk that's normally bared by, uh, by the farmers themselves. So in return of this fee, you get, uh, you know who's growing your food, you are more connected to your food, the food mile is really small, and normally the transportation doesn't involve a lot of packaging, and you have the sense of security that your food is grown in a way that's good for health and good for the environment. And uh, another int uh, very important aspect is um, it provides some leisure activities and education opportunities for people who live in the city. They can go out to the farm and to learn where their food comes from and just to have a day in nature. Is there like a benefit to that approach as it relates to kind of the response to COVID-19 and the pandemic and security of the supply? Yeah, so uh, during this time, uh, we discussed this long, long supply chain have faced many different disruptions during this time. But because uh, for CSA, the supply chain is quite short and is quite, uh, quite robust. Uh, even when there's a lot of disruptions in the highway and such, there are always ways people can, uh, Dr. She actually jokes in her blog, if there are no more fossil fuel, she can just take her, take a donkey or a horse and still deliver food 
into uh, the members uh, who live in the city. And actually during this time, she has seen quite a big increase, almost a three-time increase in, in the sales of, of the food that they produce. And also because people in this time are just in general more concerned about their health, that they care more about where, how the food is grown. So there's just a bit more uh, conscious awareness during this time. And they also, people really appreciate the security um, this short supply chain brings during this time. Um, what, what kind of activities do you think need to happen to scale CSA and, and CSA related to circular economy initiatives following the pandemic? Is there anything that you've seen happening in, in China around these initiatives um, that you think might scale it going forward? Yeah, uh, so yeah, definitely. I, I think during this time, uh, as I just mentioned, people just are more aware that how important it is. Uh, their food should come from nearby and should come from a good source, uh, from trustworthy uh, resources. And also uh, very interesting from the policy angle, there has been uh, quite a lot of um, ideas about uh, revitalizing the countryside in China because the urbanization has been happening for the past couple of decades. And we are seeing the importance to re-establish this urban-rural connection. Uh, so uh, CSA is a good way to kind of reinforce this connection between people, the urban dwellers, and the people living in the rural area. Just give them more sources of stable income and just having a good job. And also, of course, giving people living in the city access to nature again. Right, now I'm joined in the studio by the Foundation's Food Initiative lead, Emma Chow. Welcome, Emma. And I guess this is a, a bit of a big question, but what has, in your view, COVID-19 taught us about our global food system? Yes, um, these, these past few months, it's a big question indeed, um, have taught us so much in terms of our global food system. It's definitely revealed some of the brittleness of having the centralized homogenous systems that we do currently to supply our food. Um, and also some of the vulnerabilities have been revealed. And at the same time, it's pointing us towards what we need to do, right? It's, it's taught us that we need to design, redesign our food systems to be more resilient so that we're able to respond in a healthy way to these shocks that are on the horizon, whether they be another pandemic or a climate change shock like flooding, et cetera. Um, and when we think about that, how do we redesign for resilience? It does take this fundamental rewiring of the entire system. And we know that we need to move towards more diversity, different scales of supply chains and systems and get the right balance between local and global. Um, we need to create inclusive systems that work for everyone um, at any point. And circular economy and the three principles of circular economy give us these common frameworks to be able to go embark on this process to do that exact redesign for resilience. And the three principles being design out waste and pollution, keep products and materials in use, and regenerate natural systems, just in case there's yes. any doubt about what those were. <laughs> and you mentioned the um, realignment between local and global systems. I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit. What, what does that look like and, and why is it so important going forward after the pandemic? Yeah, so again, when we think about designing for resilience, we want to get into the sweet spot of not being too overly diverse and inefficient, ineffective, but also not being 
having a lack of diversity, and that's where we have the brittleness. Right now, we're, we're very much at the far end of the lack of diversity. So we need to think about these different scales. Right now, our food, wherever we are in the world, our food's coming from all over, right? But what we need to understand is what is that sweet spot, that threshold, depending on your place, where you strike the balance between what's coming in from places far away versus nearby. And we actually have an abundance of food typically growing nearby. Um, what we found in our work back in 2018 is that about 40% of the world's existing cropland is in the 20 kilometer radius, this donut area surrounding the cities of the world. So even that stat alone is often shocking to people. And we realize that there's so much growing nearby, but the logic of where that food is flowing isn't necessarily so logical today. Um, and so that's when we talk about rewiring those flows, it's about saying, hey, if something's growing nearby, if we have apples nearby, why aren't we eating those rather than importing a whole bunch um, and getting that resiliency? So when we have a shot come along, we already know what's existing nearby. We're able to maximize and optimize that sourcing. And we're creating these really resilient and thriving local economies as well that are deeply connected. And I think the crisis has triggered this growing awareness where we've actually been prompted to look nearby, to figure out who are the farmers, where do I get my food, and who are the people and places behind it, and how can I be connecting with them and their story and have a, a different value and even attitude towards food. We've seen a shift, studies even in the, in the UK are, are showing that there's a clear shift in people's values and attitudes towards food, which I hope continues to be positively reinforced um, as we come out of and recover from the crisis. Just to reiterate that stat, 40% of cropland, where crop like vegetables, whatever, are yep. grown, is, is within 20 kilometers of our cities. Yeah. Um, but obviously, a far smaller percentage, a very small percentage, that actually goes just from the from that cropland into the city. Yeah. Which kind no, of brings up the importance low. of cities in the food system that's maybe underappreciated in the way the current system is designed. Yeah, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the stress because of the impacts at the moment. It's often in ur urban centers because so much food is flowing into cities because most people live in cities and we expect by 2050, 80% of the world's food will be eaten in cities. So what we're seeing is a lot of vulnerabilities. And so how can we actually create systems, food systems where there's more of a reinforcing um, dynamic between countryside and cities? rather than cities being this draining point of resources, but actually through their very sourcing of food, through their manage of organic byproducts from food, they're able to cultivate these symbiotic relationships. And that connects to visual story, which is even in a country that isn't that dependent on imports of food, um, the regional, the na nature, the fact that there's these huge cities that need food and connecting that to rural suddenly challenged in this COVID-19 pandemic, yeah. actually it's still huge very long supply chains even within one country. And so what kind of solutions are we seeing? We're, we're talking a, a little bit about this kind of stress on cities and the kind of um, peri-urban area being really important. Um, what is the, how is the food system responding um, to that? And especially coming out of the COVID pandemic, um, what kind of creative, innovative solutions are, are, are you seeing? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of really great 
creativity emerging very quickly all over the world, especially to be responding to immediate issues around exasperated food security, which we're seeing in, in all places, um, and especially cities, a city like Sao Paulo that we're um, partnering with. We've seen the city hall and the state government coming together to quickly create an app that provides credits to every family for each child. So you get a certain number of credits for each child in the family household because those children are typically being fed lunches and or breakfasts at school. So all of a sudden, there needs to be a solution to help support these potential food, heightened food security issues that could emerge because the schools are shut. Um, so that was an app that was created using and harnessing digital tools and capabilities. Um, and we, we also are seeing in places like Nantes in France, they're taking plots of land that used to have flower beds and saying, actually, let's grow food in them. And so it's about optimizing the space in cities as well for food production and maximizing that right there on the streets. And so they're planning to that they should have enough um, veggies to be harvesting and helping to feed about a thousand families in the city, working with the local food banks that those families depend on for food. Um, we also see a lot of impacts to small farmers. Part of the negative aspects of having very specialized supply chains where you're separating the professional food industry, so the restaurants, the out-of-home food service, that supply from the rest is that when the restaurants and out-of-home food service shuts down, those farmers don't have a destination for their produce. And so that's where we're seeing a lot of wastage happening. Um, and, it's, and it's a distribution challenge because of, we know that there's hungry people that need to be fed. So we do see folks like Dan Barber, who is actually on a session of our Big Food Workshop a couple weeks ago. He, of course, has the iconic Blue Hills Farm in New York, or restaurant in New York in Stone Barns farm, um, and he's converted that restaurant into essentially a food processing facility, taking the produce that otherwise would be supplied from these farmers to the restaurant and saying, you know, we'll still take that produce, right? But instead, we'll make these boxes and deliver them to homes and residents in New York City. So it's been very quickly pivoting the use of the space, his employees, and the distribution and product that he's supplying to people. And on a similar thread, we see Recolto, in, which is an organization in Belgium, partnering with, I think, four other organizations to, again, be buying the produce, the vegetables, that otherwise would end up wasted because they simply don't have a destination from these small farmers in Belgium to create highly nutritious soups that are then, um, with a partnering social um, impact organization, getting it to households and individuals um, who need food and nutrition most. Um, this, I mean, what I like about the, some of the examples of the solutions you've given there, Emma, is it makes you kind of excited about it. And I guess sometimes this conversation around local versus global, we need to rethink the food system, can end up being framed as almost like a limiting way. I'm not going to have as much access to food as I have now, potentially, or obviously I guess there are some, there's a couple of questions that came in on, online about that in some areas, obviously, they have less rich food supplies locally than other areas. Um, are, I mean, are those challenges in, in this system? Is it easy to point to examples where there's a lot of prosperity and abundance, or, or does everywhere have its own unique set of propositions? Yeah, this is the challenge, but also the beauty of food is it's so place-based because food is coming from nature, 
right? And no ecosystem and landscape is the same. We can have some archetypes and similarities looking around the world, but at the end of the day, some places may not, because of their soil types, may not be suitable for actually growing a lot of food nearby. So that's where there's no, that's why we don't have an X percent of food universally should be sourced locally. And it really does depend. And it, we need to work through, we need to come together as cross-sector cross stakeholders to work through what is that sweet spot by place. And just to respond to the, the reaction that people often have around, well, isn't this gonna be limiting? Well, actually, what we need to do is what Makati, if you watch that clip just before this, was mentioning is really biodiversity. So agrobiodiversity. Right now, we eat such a tiny sliver of the hundred, literally hundreds of thousands of edible plant species out there. And that is untapped flavor, right? Food is about flavor, it's about nutrition, it's part of our culture. So actually, what would it mean if we had a different lens and we actually fully explored the agrobiodiversity that is right in our backyard all around the world and reimagined what we put on our dishes and how we design our food products, our dishes to be in tune with what's cultivated and naturally grows in the region. But of course, imagining that some food items will continue to be imported globally. So that's the exercise, that's part of the logic and approach to under, first understanding what can be grown nearby, what is all of that opportunity, and then what are some of those missing gaps that yes, we need to um, supplement with imports, either from a national level or regional level or international level. Any final questions from you, Tansy? Well, we've got Emma stuck here online with us. Well, I mean, I think um, what Emma was just talking about kind of leads us into talking a little bit about the importance of um, regenerative agriculture to build that agro-biodiversity that's needed. Um, I don't know if we've got enough time to kind of go into that in a little bit more detail, but maybe just a kind of a comment on, on the movement towards regenerative agricultural practices and, and why it's kind of such a crucial part of building a circular economy for food before we log yes. off. <laughs> yes, and when we're, when we're talking about regenerative food production methods, there's a whole array of practices from agroecology, agroforestry, managed grazing, silvopasture, etc. Those are all different steps and actions that you can take towards regenerative outcomes. So at the end of the day, it's about supporting biodiversity, taking care of soil health, clean air, clean water, all of those great ecosystem benefits and services that farmers and the way that we actually grow our food can provide. So we're seeing a lot of movement towards a regenerative food production system. And we, and we need to further accelerate that and enabling factors like policy and what we're seeing in the EU with the farm to fork. Um, mission is, is really important for enabling and accelerating all of that. And it farm ties- to fork, what is that in 10 seconds or 30 seconds? So that was released earlier, I think that was in, in May. Um, and it lays out really what are these goals um, towards more regenerative practices for farmers in the EU um, and just really that role of policy for, yeah, using less finite inputs, um, promoting the biodiversity, protecting the soil and really embedding that in the core values um, and, and really mission at a macro 
level. Across the European Union. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and I just want to make a final point of regenerative agriculture isn't something that's brand new, right? It's, it's farmers have been farming this way for a long, long time, but we can see a direct link between regenerative agriculture and increased resilience. So right now, as we're thinking about how do we redesign for resilience, regenerative production practices need to be at the heart of it because it means that a farmer is going to be better able to respond to flooding and droughts and shocks, have better protection of their income and farmer livelihoods, and there is an emerging evidence base connecting soil health with nutrition and flavor of food as well. Feels like the pandemic's almost put a mic, a magnifying glass on an issue that was already gaining momentum, already, uh, I think, you know, appreciation of the challenges of our food system with the challenges of current agricultural methods was already gaining momentum going into the pandemic. And then it's almost like it's just put a magnifying glass or shone a light even more firmer to bring more people into this conversation. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think um, there's a lot of hope within food system actors, food system initiatives, because while we are seeing some of the most devastating impacts today and, and suffering, it is a trigger point to be getting everyone to really move a lot quicker than perhaps where we were six months, 12 months, Great. years ago. In this conversation, we have discussed how we can transform our food system based on the principles of the circular economy, so that it contributes towards regenerating our natural systems and a thriving economy. We have also explored China's reaction to the pandemic and some of the opportunities for a circular economy for food in this geography. That's all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. We look forward to seeing you again in future episodes. But bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.